in accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Because it taught me that in the end, if people want to change, that they really have to have their own personal reason to change, and it may have nothing to do with work. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA, and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Mike Goodfriend of Goodfriend and Associates in Houston, Texas. Mike's got an interesting story. I'm not going to give away the details yet, of course, but his career truly has been filled with a bunch of variety. He started in audit, then started a business, then closed that business, then moved into human resources, and then started his second business that he's had now for almost 30 years. Plus, he's authored a book, and he's created his own teamwork training methodology that includes Shark Tank-like activities. He's a really interesting guy. I think you're seriously going to enjoy this one. If you do find this episode interesting, please visit us at whereaccountantsco.com to subscribe to the podcast via email, or you can do so on your favorite podcast app as well. Also, we have a job board for the Texas area and links to all the prevalent certifications in the accounting world as well. That site is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Mike Goodfriend of Goodfriend and Associates. Well, hello, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. Well, for our audience, Mike good friend in Houston, Texas, is joining us for the program today. And Mike came referred to us, as many of our guests do these days, from one of our previous guests, this time from the Houston area. I thought Mike would make a great guest for us because his career has been, frankly, quite different than the typical accounting path, but fulfilling nonetheless. Mike owns Good Friend and Associates, which is an organization that facilitates performance improvement in corporations. And Naturally, I'm going to leave all those details of that endeavor for Mike to share himself because he'll do a much better job than I would. Mike, before we get into Good Friend and Associates, though, and what you're doing now, basically, I always like to start at the beginning so we can see sort of how your career progressed from those early days in accounting to where you are today. Back in those early days, what initially influenced you to consider that accounting may be a good career in the first place? Well, it's a great question, Mark. Yeah, I guess a bit about me historically. I grew up in Fullerton, California, outside of Los Angeles, and I was always a huge sports fan as a kid, especially the L.A. Dodgers, and played Little League Baseball. I always enjoyed baseball statistics, and I always did very well in school and math. That always interested me a, a lot. In fact, one of my friends and I, you know, I think when we were eight or nine years old, we used to pour over the statistics of the L.A. Dodgers every year and test each other and see if we remembered, you know, how many home runs a certain player had and how many RBIs. So I was always into numbers. And I moved to Pittsburgh when I was in high school. 
And one of my high school electives was accounting. And I just liked it. And I think what I liked the most was probably that debits were supposed to equal credits. It just seemed like all was right with the world when debits equaled credits. So that was my first exposure to accounting and and really did have an influence on me choosing that for my major and then my career. Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, you're not the first person to say they did well in math, but you are the first person to talk about baseball. That I have a lot of stories about, but uh, anybody who knows me knows that so many of my analogies and my, my stories in consulting usually have some type of baseball bent to it. So uh, you'll probably hear some more as we continue our talk. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, for all those parents out there, if you want your child to become an accountant, give them some baseball cards. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's right. So did you start out in college majoring in accounting, or were there some twists and turns in there as well? Yeah, actually I did. It was an interesting story. I, so I went to school at Penn State. I actually applied initially in parks and recreation. I think I saw myself and well, I had a job when I was 15 or 16 as a parks and recreation assistant and really enjoyed kind of working with people on sports and things like that. But they didn't accept too many people, so I got rejected. And I thought, yeah, that's really, I liked accounting. I thought that was something that I might enjoy. And so I reapplied in accounting and was accepted. And I was uh, probably one of the best things that could have ever happened to me, getting rejected in parks and recreation. Interesting. Okay. So you go through school as an accounting major. What was your first job out or what were some of those internships like? Yeah. Yeah. So I, being from LA, I had a desire to return. So uh, at least I, I think I dreamed of returning back to LA after I graduated college. So I actually got an audit internship in Los Angeles with Deloitte. I guess it was called Deloitte Haskins and Sells back then. And I really had a great internship. But my favorite big eight firm back then was Pricewaterhouse. And so the opportunity came up after my internship where they gave me an offer. The only place that they could, the location that they could offer me was Houston because Houston was booming back then. So that's how I ended up in Houston. I really was a great office to be in. I was very fortunate to get my start there. Kind of an interesting story. So after my internship, I Went, I was meeting some friends from Penn State in Florida for spring break. That's what college students do. So I drove from L.A. to Florida, and I drove through Houston. I was on Interstate 10, and in driving through Houston, I got lost a couple of times. And I remember calling my parents that night and telling them, I could never live here. It's crazy to drive here. And literally, it was within a couple of weeks or a month after that that I accepted the offer from Pricewaterhouse to come to Houston. And I told myself I was only going to live there two years, get my CPA, and then either back to California or Pennsylvania. And I underestimated my stay here. Instead of two years, it's been 38 years. So. Oh, my gosh. So you never you never moved back to L.A. at all? You've just nope. Been nope. Houston. Oh. Been in Houston ever since. It's amazing how life works out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really does. I guess in terms of my role at Price Waterhouse, I guess I had that typical staff auditor responsibility, and some of my assignments, I think, really they're oil and gas related, and never really knew too much about that coming from you know the west and the northeast. 
but I work with a geophysical and a parts company, a company as big as Exxon. I audited the bank reconciliations at Exxon, which was quite an experience. I don't remember what the materiality number was, but it was way more than I could ever contemplate in terms of a materiality <laughs> number. I also did had a great client who was an oil field valve manufacturer that actually became a client of mine as a consultant later on when I had my own business. So I was real fortunate. Great experience. And I did really well at Pricewaterhouse. I got an early promotion to audit senior and, you know, in two years instead of three. So it was really clicking with me. I, it was, I really enjoyed the interaction and the, I guess, the analysis that comes from doing audit. Okay. Okay. I want to make sure I don't miss any of the high points of your audit career, but one of the things that piqued my interest when I was doing my you know, pre-show research was your move into human resources with PwC, because I know it's not unheard of, but obviously it's a little, a little unusual. Are there any other highlights we should know about your audit career, or how did that transition work, and what did you what led you to HR, of all places? <laughs> yeah, that's another good question. I clearly don't have a traditional career path. But at the same time, I mean, we all branch out in different ways. And so after my promotion to Audit Senior, I guess I was well thought of. I mean, I wasn't that much ahead of everybody else, but I did get that early promotion. But they actually, the firm made me an offer to take on one of their higher visibility audit assignments as a senior. And it was the Conoco audit. And the only issue was it would involve a move to Ponca City, Oklahoma. And I went up to visit Ponca City. And although it was a very pleasant town, I actually could have been a town at a different point in my life that I probably would enjoy being in. But as a 24-year-old single guy, I declined the opportunity and you know decided to take my chances career-wise and staying in Houston. But I had some great audit assignments, some engineering and construction, this company called Raymond International. And I, I got some great Great opportunities to see some unusual things as an auditor. Probably, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed the most is I actually had the opportunity to be the trainer for the new audit staff. We called it audit entry. And it was, I think, a three-week program. And I it was myself and another trainer. And it was for the people who were mostly out of college, just starting with the firm. And I really, really enjoyed the training. I enjoyed supervising people and developing them. So those are the things I found that I really enjoyed. And the auditing work itself, although I enjoyed it in the beginning, I didn't see myself doing that all my life. So when I was promoted to audit manager, I was actually assigned to be a manager on the Shell Oil Company audit. But I knew I didn't want to do this all my life. So I actually left the firm. And kind of a crazy story. I left the firm to pursue a master's degree in educational psychology. So it was a pretty big shift, I would say, from where I had come. I think I had seen so much turnover in big firms and a lot of people that I knew that were unhappy in their, you know, working for firms. So I I also decided to start a career consulting business while I was going to school. And I had no experience doing it. I think I used the book, What Color is Your Parachute? And that was how I entered that business. I remember I went into the managing partner's office to resign and tell him what I was going to do. And this is exactly what happened. He literally laughed at me and he told me I was crazy. (laughs) Funny thing is, he, he was probably right. 
I mean, I I learned a lesson pretty quickly that being an entrepreneur wasn't so easy. So I you know you asked, how did I get into HR? I'm getting around to that. After about six to seven months of having my business and taking a few classes and more importantly, exhausting all my cash, I couldn't do that anymore and I had to do something different. So I went back to the people I knew at Price Waterhouse and I was hoping that they might be able to refer me to a client to be an accounting manager controller. And instead, they offered me a job to come back to the firm in human resources. So that's really, I can tell you a little bit about the, you know, what I did there, but that's really the story on how I made that transition. It wasn't a planned transition. It was one that was an opportunity and a great step for me in transitioning, you know, from accounting and audit into kind of an HR-related field. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't like or I don't want to, you know, promote one firm over another. But I have noticed with some of the other guests on the show that worked with PwC or do work currently with PwC that the PwC does seem to, quote, think outside the box in terms of, you know, letting people explore other opportunities to do something a little different within the firm, you know, if it works for both sides. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was a lucky. Good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. So how long were you in HR with PwC? I was in HR for four years. And, you know, it was an HR role, but it really it wouldn't be considered what you would call a typical HR person probably wouldn't have been right for that role at that time. They needed somebody to knew the audit practice to manage the audit scheduling process. That was probably the biggest part of the job. And because it's such an important part of the job that, Audit managers are supported with the, you know, the right people for their clients, but it also has to be balanced with providing learning and development opportunities for the staff and balanced with managing utilization to maximize utilization. So it really did fit a lot of who I am. It both the business, you know, achieving the business outcomes, uh, balancing the client's needs with the learning needs of the individual. So it was great. The utilization was great for me because as a, you know, as a CPA, measurable results really mattered. And one of our challenges, and I think this is the case, always has been, always will be, probably less so these days, but in audit, you have a peak during busy season and there's usually some mini peaks of time, you know, doing interim testing. Well, our challenge was to smooth out those interim peaks and even move some work from the busy season into interim so that we didn't have to hire people to the peak. We could be much more efficient and keep our costs in line if we can smooth out that work. And we did. We were able to improve utilization about 4%, which is a pretty big number when at the time we had 120 audit staff and seniors. So I took a lot of pride in that accomplishment. My role also involved recruiting of experienced hires, and that was fairly new at the time. And so that was an important responsibility. I did compensation, and I was also the the mentor for all the new staff their first year. So I I had some great responsibilities, but I got to tell you, Mark, there was one thing that just kind of changed my whole trajectory of what I was going to do with my life career-wise, and I was trained in a personality profile instrument that the firm had used with managers and partners. It's called the Berkman Method. 
And the managing partner was a real forward thinker at the time and wanted to use this instrument to help staff you know, develop their communication and teamwork skills. So that was a, a big part of what I did as well. And, and it, like I said, it, it changed you know, my whole career. I didn't realize Bergman was around back then. We, we obviously, you know, Pauline referred you, and actually, I think I got your name from a few other people as well. But we, you know, had Pauline, their CFO, on the podcast not long ago. I, I didn't realize Bergman was around because we're talking about what the eighties, early nineties. Yes, that was in the eighties. Yeah, it was in the eighties. Well, I'll tell you a quick story about Bergman, just because it really is a great one. Is Roger Berkman, the author or creator of the Berkman Method, he passed away a few years ago now, but he was an Air Force pilot in, in World War II, and his plane was shot down, and in the debrief, you know, after it was shot down, each of the crew members actually saw the events in different ways, and it really triggered that thinking for him when he ended up doing his, you know, dissertation, you know, PhD dissertation in psychology, that there was people's perceptions. You know, they perceived the world and the events in different ways based on their own view of themselves and the world. So it was 1951 when he actually created the Berkman Method. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Long time ago. Yeah. I'm sure it came up a little bit in the previous podcast. I guess it just didn't register that it was quite, had been around that long. That's amazing. Sure. Wow. Sure. Yeah. What led you to the decision to start your business? What was that decision-making process like? And what was sort of the the final moment when you decided, I'm going to do this? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I learned a lot in my HR role at Pricewaterhouse, and it's kind of what I knew career-wise. I I knew audit. I knew, you know, accounting firms. Being the, I'll call it the scheduler, it was not always easy because I kind of had to be the mediator of the trade-off between people's development and the negotiation for staff. And, you know, it was difficult. There was a lot of politics involved and in getting, you know, people wanted the best people all the time. And so there was always, there was a lot of challenges in trying to make people happy, you might say both on the staff side as well as managers and partners side. So that, you know, mediating those politics was something I, I think I got some great experience, but it wasn't something I cared to do much longer. And and what I really, really enjoyed was using the Berkman method to really work with people, to improve communication, to help people grow as leaders and, you know, improve how they collaborate as a team. So, and back then, this was, you know, in the late 80s, Berkman was obviously being used, but a lot of companies didn't see this as something, you know, that was worthwhile for their businesses. And I just felt like, you know, this was going to be an opportunity and I, I wanted, it was something I was passionate about. So that's why I left the firm and I started my second in current business, a good friend and associates. And when I started, all I did was provide consulting around the Berkman method. And so I had to go resign again to the same managing partner and tell him what I was going to do. And, you know, the one that laughed at me and this time, luckily, he didn't laugh and he actually wanted the firm to be my first client. And so I knew I was on the right track this time and it was great to get his support because I was, you know, working with the Berkman and the staff. And so this was just really a continuation as a more of a consultant and contractor. 
And one of the managers at the firm also gave me a referral to a local accounting firm. And I was able to do that with all the, you know, use the Berkman with all the partners to help improve their communication. So yeah, it was a great start, but like any business development was a challenge. And this was kind of an unconventional service. And, you know, it took me a while, probably five years to, you know, get my footing, you might say, because I'd never really done consulting before. So I was not only learning how to deliver consulting at the same time I was trying to build a business. So something that I needed, you know, it took me a while to get my feet under. Okay. Okay. It sounds like the difference is this time you started out with some clients. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That helps. I was looking at my notes here, say six or seven months in business the first time, ran out of cash, went back yeah. to PwC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knew something changed. That's yeah. Funny. That's Thank funny. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so that was almost 30 years ago now, right? Yep. Yep. 1989. Wow. Okay. Okay. So what does your business look like now? Yeah. What are your specialties and how is it different? Yeah. So... There's really kind of three ways I help clients as a teamwork engineer, a leadership coach, and a meeting facilitator. And these are, I would call my core offerings. But I'm still, a, I look at it, I'm a consultant. When a client has a need, and if there's a way that I can help, or a way either through designing some consulting services myself or referring them, that's what I'm here to do. But most of what I provide is around, you know, being a teamwork engineer, a leadership coach, and a meeting facilitator. So I'll just take, if that's okay, a few minutes to go through each one and a little bit about, you know, what I do and, you know, maybe some stories about how I've helped clients. Of course. Yes, please. Yep. So a teamwork engineer is, you actually don't hear that. I don't know if I could trademark that term or not, but I don't know of anybody else who uses that term. To me, being a teamwork engineer is, I really do help clients with their teamwork systems to really maximize the impact that teamwork has on a business and on business results. Now, that no doubt involves things like team building sessions to build trust, to improve communication, to increase what I call productive disagreement, to align roles and responsibilities. So it's anything from what you would call the soft skills to more organizational skills or organizational processes. So that's what involves. So usually I'll get a call from a client that is oftentimes having issues within the team. There's some trust issues. They're trying to grow and they really need to focus on a team goal and working more effectively together. And no doubt the Berkman method does play a role, but often bring in other processes and exercises or recommendations on how they can build those kind of teamwork systems. So that's really what that's about. Done so many of these over the years, it's hard to give a specific story, but there's, I'll never forget, there was a client, they were in the custom manufacturing business, and there was some deep-seated issues with their operations management and in working as a team. They had multiple call manufacturing areas that work had to go from one area to the next. And the managers were compensated and evaluated based on their own production as opposed to the collective production. And so, yeah, of course, we go, oh, that doesn't make much sense. But some of the work 
only went through one of the areas, and then some of the work touched all the areas. So there were some trust issues, and their biggest challenge was their on-time performance was only about 70%, and the owner of the company set a goal for them to achieve as a team that their on-time performance for the year needed to be 95%. And if they did, they would get their bonus, and if they didn't, they wouldn't get a bonus. And so they got not only got motivated, but they really started to work on their relationships and their coordination and that type of thing. The end of the story is that their on-time performance for the year was 94.9%. But the owner gave them the bonus considering how much they had improved and they really deserved it. So that's a good story about teamwork. If I was on that team, I would have been saying, hey, you didn't tell me where you were going to cut off the rounding. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like us accountants probably would <laughs> would do, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm also, you know, I do a lot of leadership coaching and leadership training. I coach both middle managers and executives one-on-one to help them, you know, grow their leadership skills. You know, I often get calls from accounting firms, both partners and senior managers, for them to work on a lot of their leadership and communication skills. Because like a lot of leaders that are trying to grow, their technical competency is quite high, but they haven't worked on their leadership skills to get them on par. So that's oftentimes the opportunity, you know, from a growth perspective around leadership development, those types of things. And I'll tell you a quick story about this. I think I learned more from my client. I know he learned a lot from me, but it was my very first coaching assignment. And he was a he was a geoscientist that was helping a big oil company, you know, assess reservoirs in the Gulf of Mexico deep water, which was kind of new back then to drill in the deep water. Well, he was a scientific genius is the way he was seen in the organization and what he was able to do. But his interpersonal skills were, you know, bordered on being abusive. Well, I got feedback, you know, for him. And so he could learn about what people saw as his strengths and areas for improvement. And he, when I delivered the feedback to him, you know, he disagreed and he thought that was ridiculous and he called people some names, you know, things like that. Even though he didn't know exactly who it was, it was just he was calling in general, you know, people some names. Well, we came back after a little bit of time to start assessing, you know, where he wanted to go in terms of his development plan. And he goes, do you think I should see a therapist? And I said, I don't know. Why do you ask? And he says, well, this feedback sounds a lot like what my first wife told me. And I don't want the same thing to happen with my current wife. And Boy, that taught me so much because it taught me that in the end, if people want to change, that they really have to have their own personal reason to change, and it may have nothing to do with work. So that was super powerful. Also on leadership coaching, I actually created this, uh, it's really, I think, a cutting-edge program. It's a Shark Tank-style leadership program, usually for up-and-coming leaders that are considered high potentials. And it's really for companies that want to invest in their next generation of leaders. And I call this program the Teamwork Sharks. It's got elements of a traditional leadership program of self-assessment and, you know, workshops to improve skills. But 
at the end, participants, you know, in the program have to identify and make a compelling business case for a cross-functional business opportunity that they want to lead. So they actually have to make that case to myself and a colleague. You know, we call ourselves the Teamwork Sharks. And not only to us, they have to make the case to the company's executives. And, you know, we as the Teamwork Sharks award the winner with what we call the Teamwork Sharks to award for making the best case, or I'll call it the biggest, the best, and most probable business opportunity. And it's, you know, in some ways, this is kind of the what I call the beauty contest to get the award. But the executives are in the room are also assessing this and making some decisions about what opportunities could impact the bottom line or what might go into a pipeline of future business opportunities that can impact the bottom line. So that people want to learn more about that, it's at TeamworkSharks.com. And one last thing about that is I actually wrote a book on the Teamwork Sharks process. It's called Breakthrough Time. And this is where my innovation and creativity that sometimes it doesn't have the opportunity to come out. Well, I, I think it, it did in this one. It, it's a business novel, and it's about how my 50-year-old, my two grandchildren in their 50s come back in time from the year 2085 to get myself and my Teamwork Sharks partner to come with them to the future so that we can help them commercialize a revolutionary technology through the Teamwork Sharks process. So it was a blast to write it. It was really a a lot of fun and, you know, kind of had a business purpose to it. Interesting. I like how you, I think the term is gamify. You know, you've gamified the the leadership development process. That's that's neat. Wow. Okay. Thank you. I'm just curious. I wrote this down earlier. And how much of your work these days is done with the accounting world, you know, with accounting firms or accounting departments? Or, because it's oh, good, like yeah. Go I ahead. don't know if I've actually got a percentage, but I, I think it typically probably in the 15 to 20% range. It's not, I definitely do not specialize. Like, you know, there are some great consultants that specialize in the industry, and I don't, but I definitely, I have some clients like I'm coaching some partners in accounting firms right now and I've coached CFOs and sometimes work directly with accounting firms on their you know how they collaborate around business processes so yeah that's definitely a piece of my work but definitely not all of it okay okay so where do you see your business going you know if, if you look out the proverbial five years or you know maybe more what does success look like for you are you writing more books are you <laughs> contracting other facilitators what are you doing yeah yeah and I, I'm you know mostly a solo practitioner but I do have consultants that I work with on projects including the teamwork sharks you know I've really I had my eyes opened probably uh, about six eight months ago it was actually Last August, right before, you know, there's actually the day before Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. And I went to a workshop that was put on by the Technology Collaboration Center of Houston. It was actually on automation and robotics. And it was really eye-opening to me to learn about some of the automation and robotics technologies, but also to see how the leaders of today and tomorrow really need to grow as leaders in different ways. They need to have a different emphasis on their leadership competencies than, than they do today. But some of these technologies that we're seeing today and, and what I call the platform disruption that is occurring that can, in essence, companies from outside your industry can come in and take your line of business away because they have a platform to deliver that service differently than the traditional way. So things really are changing and accelerating, and, and there's process automation as well where we just 
find more automated ways to deliver the services that we do. So, but it really opened my eyes. There are some real challenges from a leadership standpoint. You know, data analytics is changing how organizations, you know, the pace that or the speed in which they have to introduce new products based on what customers need so that companies are getting better at measuring not only what customers need, but how they react to everything from marketing to, you know, how they sign on to deals to how they measure performance related to the service or product that they want. So leaders need to be much better at using data analytics and interpreting that data to gain a competitive advantage. Another leadership skill that is going to become very important, and I got introduced to this at this workshop, was being able to, what I would call leading, you know, being a leader in building trust and automation. And, you know, Mark, if you and I had a trust issue between us and that was getting in the way of our working relationship, we can, even though we sometimes think it's never going to get better, we can sit down with each other. This is something I do in, in team building. I teach people to be more vulnerable with each other and to learn to accept each other despite our shortcomings. And quite often, there's progress in improving our trust because I can look you in the eye and if you share something with me that's very genuine and real, I can see that your intentions and your heart are in the right place. Well, I can't do that with technology, and I don't know what's in their heart or in their programming quite often, because I'm not going to be the one that does the programming. So if you think about this, we see this with self-driving cars today. There are people who hear about these accidents, and they go, I'm not going to get one of those, or I'm not getting one of those. And even though that the statistics show that, you know, human error is actually a bigger cause of accidents than automated technology probably will be. But for now, that's how people feel. So building trust and automation is a very important thing because there's a lot of safety and risk associated with that automation and a lot of circumstances. So that's really where my business isn't changing, but my focus on how to build leadership skills and how to collaborate, how machines and people can collaborate more effectively. They actually call those types of robots, I call them cobots, because they collaborate with humans. And those are the kinds of things that are, you know, going to be changing the workplace. So I'm giving presentations now a lot to professional organizations and executive teams about those leadership skills and the leadership development in the disruptive age. And I didn't realize it when I did it, but the Teamwork Sharks process and my book, Breakthrough Time, were really kind of great building blocks because they're great vehicles for developing leadership skills in the disruptive age. So that's probably a long answer to your question about where my business is going. Interesting. I just have to ask, so do you and Donnie Shimamoto end up speaking at the same? <laughs> we do. We do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Donnie's it seems a, like he. No, I was going to say, it just seems like I could see him putting on a presentation about technology and disruption and then you being the next guy up to talk about how you lead your team through that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're both speaking at AICPA Controllers Conference. I think it's in November together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and we've gotten pretty far into this. I do end every podcast with three questions. So I want to go ahead and get to that. The first one is usually the easiest. Career-wise, what has been your proudest moment? 
I guess my proudest moment was the day that my book was published. And uh, it took me seven months. I told myself that I'd be done with the first draft in two months, and it actually took seven. And I used to go up to my home office upstairs in my house and, you know, at least a few nights a week. My wife was very supportive of giving me that time, and I would just start writing. I didn't tell her what the book was about, and it was really a really opportunity for me to be creative. But the book is also, I was writing something not just for my business, but it's really, in a way, a gift to my now 21-year-old son, who obviously had the two children in the book. <laughs> but it was a way for him, I think, it was a way for him to learn more about what his father thinks of him and my dreams of what his future could be like and what I would, what my ideal world would look like you know, for him. Hmm. That is a gift. Definitely. Well, second question, please tell us about a mistake you've made. And of course, we want to know what you learned from it, but don't hold back on us. The bigger, the better. <laughs> we like the big mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a tough one. I've probably made more, more than my fair share over the years. That's how we all learn. Uh, sure. We learn more from our mistakes than we do our successes. And the thing that comes to my mind was early on, I did a lot of when I was starving for revenue in my firm, I did a lot of subcontracting. And I was subcontracting with a consulting firm. And the owner of the consulting firm was what I would call a team-building genius. This person contracted with a big oil company for a million-dollar contract to do team-building for quite a few teams. And I was one of the consultants that was playing a key role in working with the clients, not only in the team building sessions, but some of the development work that was required in interfacing with the client. So it was a really great opportunity until the owner asked me to inflate my timesheet. And I refused, of course. But so I guess, I don't know if it was a mistake, but what I really learned that whoever I partner with, I really needed to be more careful at choosing who I collaborate with. And that revenue is not worth it if it ruins your reputation. I was lucky. I would say I was lucky to avoid that, but I was that close to, you know, being with somebody that could ruin my reputation. Wow. Yeah, that's something you generally don't think about until it starts to happen. And then, yeah, yeah that's a hard situation. Thank you for sharing. That. Sure. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What has been the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Well, I think that the best piece of advice that I ever received was probably, again, it was probably the lesson I learned on that first leadership coaching assignment, you know, with that individual who really told me by being who he was and asking if he should see a therapist that I think he taught me a lot about what makes people change and what helps them grow as a leader. And I, I think that helps me today. I mean, when I'm coaching somebody one-on-one, I always want to ask them, what is their motivator? I mean, why is this important to them? And is it important enough for them to want to initiate and drive their own development and change? So that was probably the thing that taught me the most. So that probably was an indirect advice that he was giving me without realizing it. Yeah, that is a great story. I appreciate you sharing that because you not only made a career better, but you may have saved a marriage. (laughs) Hopefully so, yeah. (laughs) That is a good point to end this on, definitely. If somebody wanted to reach out to you or find out more about your businesses, I guess, what's the best way to contact you or, or what's the best website? 
to go to? Yeah, they can go to goodfriendconsulting.com. Good friend is spelled just like it sounds, so goodfriendconsulting.com. On there is my email address, which is mikeg at goodfriendconsulting.com. Or my phone number is also there at 713-789-6840. But they just need, you know, going to goodfriendconsulting.com will have all that contact information. Be happy to talk to anybody who, you know, would like to talk more about, about some of the things that we've discussed. Perfect. Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited that website, please check it out. Of course, we're going to have the show notes here, but also for all the other episodes as well. We also have links to all the popular accounting certifications. We have links to review courses, which can be very key when you're looking to get certified. And we have a job board there for positions in the Texas area as well. Once again, that's whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Mike, do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, I think based on what I've told you about my career, I think my advice to anybody is for those of you who aren't sure whether you want to be an accountant or a CPA your whole career, always remember the CPA and accounting profession is a great foundation for whatever you go into in the future. So I know I'm happy that that's the foundation of my consulting today, and I think it will be for you as well. So, Mark, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to speak to you today. At all. That is a very good point. Well said. Well, thank you again to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.